Would you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9? Mark chapter 9, we'll be reading verses 2 through 10 this morning. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 10. It says this, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant. Intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but only Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy this morning, in this place, in our hearts, in our minds, so that we see things the way that they truly are, so that we see you the way you truly are. Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts so that we catch a glimpse of your glory and are moved by it to do your will and participate in your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Okay, so I want to begin this morning by stepping back and giving a little bit of context, because do you all remember how the Gospel of Mark began? He has this very brief introductory statement right away, and then, then he, right away he quotes the prophet Isaiah. And he says this, so in verses 1 through 3 of Mark, say this, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So why does Mark begin with this quote? I love this. I, Mark is trying to bring a whole story into your mind with this quote, with this quote from Isaiah 40. If the Old Testament is a mountain range, Isaiah 40 is one of the highest peaks. So to set the scene, let me, I'm going to give you a very abbreviated history of, the, of Israel, the people of Israel, like a minute and a half. Uh, so I'm going to try. So it begins with an old guy named Abraham, and God's promise to him that he would miraculously bring into being a family from this man's line, from, from this man and his wife, and somehow through this family, blessing would be restored to every nation. And then God rescues, very abbreviated, he rescues this family from slavery, right? And he brings out of Egypt, and he brings them into the promised land across the Jordan River the land that he had promised them. And once they enter there, they become a kingdom. And one of their earliest and most famous kings, King David, God makes a promise to him that a king is going to come from his line that uh, will set up a kingdom and rule the nations with peace and justice forever and ever, and it's going to be awesome. 
And so then there's a line of kings that come after David in the history of Israel. And it's the, the Israel's kingdom period, and it goes very badly. And it's a long, involved, tragic story of watching this people that had such incredible potential and opportunity just squander it over and over again, running this kingdom into the ground. And so over this 400-year period, this process it ends with the evil empire Babylon coming to Jerusalem, sacking and besieging that city, burning the temple, and hauling its people off into exile for a long time. And so the people of Israel, and even just those of us reading this story, are like, well, what about God's promises and, and the blessing to the nations and, and the Messiah? When is all this going to come? And Isaiah 40 is one of the most magnificent and important chapters in the Old Testament because it addresses the question of what hope do God's people have at this dark point in their history. And the voice of Isaiah is speaking in Isaiah 40 is looking beyond exile and, and speaking of God's, to God's people the hope for their future. So let me read you how it begins. It, it goes, comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. So we see there how it begins. This chapter starts with a message uh, to God's people who seem to be without hope. And, it's, and they're not sure if Yahweh is, has, is with them or if he's abandoned them. And so it's a message of comfort. It starts out saying, comfort, comfort my people and reassurance. He's saying this exile in Babylon has been Israel dealing with the consequences of their sin. And it has accomplished what God willed for it. They've faced the music, if you will. And now it's time to move on with their relationship. And so then there's this poetic description of what? Of the building of a highway, right? Every valley being lifted up and every mountain being made low and the uneven ground becoming level. It's the building of a road. For what purpose? For the coming of Yahweh. Yahweh himself is coming like a, a royal procession. A king is coming back. And everyone's going to see his glory and his return to his people. This is the great hope of the Jewish people. And this is what Mark quotes to begin his story about good news of Jesus Christ. And this, in this chapter, it would, have, it would have built the framework for the Jewish people's connotations with the term gospel or good news. And Jesus' own ideas of what he proclaimed when he proclaimed the gospel were tied to this proclamation of good news in Isaiah. And you'll see why in a, minute, in a minute. Because the main component of this good news is God himself. So Isaiah poetically reflects on the greatness and the majesty in the rest of this chapter on the, of, this, of the glory of God. 
he talks about in the rest of this chapter as he comes. And I just want you to hear it because it's, it's magnificent. And so it's kind of long, so settle in. But it's wonderful. And, and Mark says that it's fulfilled in Jesus. Okay, so he says this. He says, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord Yahweh comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of Yahweh? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Or who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from Yahweh, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. 
Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for Yahweh shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's Isaiah 40. And in that chapter, you, you have this herald announcing good news, saying Yahweh is coming in power as a king to rule and bring his kingdom, bringing justice. And then in stunning contrast, you also see him as a, a compassionate and tender shepherd, bringing mercy and, and, and strengthening the weak. And this is what everyone was waiting for in Israel. And then many years later, Mark records for us, John the Baptist comes embodying that herald of Isaiah 40. And he goes down to the Jordan River, which is significant for the story of Israel as the place where they began life in the promised land, crossing over that river. And John the Baptist is, is announcing this renewal movement of God's people. He's preparing the way for Yahweh to come back personally among his people. So he says, let's go back down to the river because Yahweh is coming. So we'll go back to where we started. And, and just, just like Isaiah 40 said, he's coming. So we go back and we prepare ourselves. We admit how we've failed as a people. And we ask for his forgiveness. And then, as the readers of the story, we're waiting. We see the herald of Isaiah 40 announcing. So I, Yahweh is coming back, coming personally among his people. And then enter Jesus, whose name is Yahweh brings salvation. And he's baptized by John in the Jordan River. And heaven is ripped open. And a voice says, this, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And many people, including John the Baptist, as you read in the stories, he is a little, we're stunned by this. King Yahweh is coming. Prepare for the king. He's, God is coming personally. What's it going to look like? What's it going to be like? And it looks like a carpenter's son from a tiny village. And Jesus proclaims this good news, which now you know the significance of. He claims that as you see me, you see Yahweh's kingdom here. Repent and believe the good news. I just, I just love how beautifully... Mark is written and how he, how he uses this quote. He's communicating this incredible idea that Jesus is Yahweh become human to do for humanity what we could never do for ourselves. And we gradually through the story get more and more glimpses of Jesus' incredible character and his incredible power, but he's still so human, right? Sure, he's shown some extraordinary extraordinary power, but he always seems to use it in ways that we wouldn't expect. He's not toppling the Roman Empire with his power. He's using it to bless and serve ordinary people, and even less than ordinary people. Where's the transcendence and the glory and the magnitude and the majesty that we see in Isaiah 40? And then in the middle of this book, he graciously gives a few of his disciples a glimpse of this glory and this majesty. And he takes them up on this mountain. And, and just like when Moses went up on a mountain and he begged to see the glory of God, but God said it would be too much for him. 
Now Jesus takes his disciples up on a mountain, and Moses is even there. And then his glory shines through Jesus, and his disciples witness it. I love how the book of Hebrews begins with this truth. He says in Hebrews 1, 3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The one who is the radiance of the glory of God and upholds the world by the word of his power is the same one who loved you so much he became a human and died making purification for your sins, but now has risen again exalted to his exalted status, reigning at the right hand of God on high as the redeeming ruler of all. And this vision is so important for us to get into our minds and our hearts because every hope that we have as believers is rooted in the glory of God that Isaiah reveals for us and that Jesus fulfills. All of our obedience flows from our belief that there really is a holy one of this magnitude and majesty. Every fearless act of faith is motivated by the knowledge that this kind of God sits on the throne of the universe. Every act of willingness to persevere through hardship is generated by remembering this incredible reality that Isaiah 40 lays out for us. And the glory that Isaiah reaches to the limits of his language to describe for us, that glory, Mark tells us, Jesus fulfills. We live in his world. We live as his people. Human beings were created to live in heart-gripping, life-shaping awe of God, of Jesus. And this is more practical than we might think because the only way that we can rightly understand this world is by understanding the creator of this world. And the only way we can rightly understand ourselves and humanity is by understanding the creator of humanity. It's only in knowing God that we can truly know ourselves. It's only when we have God in his proper place and are celebrating who he is that we can ever truly know who we are. And I'm afraid that often, even as Christians, many of us have forgotten who we are because we fail to worship God for who he is and what he's done. And we no longer define ourselves vertically, but we we seek after horizontal replacement identities that are tempting, but leave us empty. And they leave us empty because God has put eternity in our hearts that only he can fill as the eternal one. And one pastor calls this state of forgotten identity, identity amnesia. And it's very dangerous. And the cure for identity amnesia is worship. Well, I should say the cure for identity amnesia is, is right worship. True worship. Worship of God. Because all humans are worshipers. No one really put this better than David Foster Wallace. Wallace was by no means a Christian or even a a religious person. He was a secular author, a novelist. But a few years before the end of his life, he gave a now famous famous commencement speech at a graduating class of uh, Kenyon College. And he says this to that class. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. 
If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power, and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It is that they're unconscious. Their default setting. So I love that quote because Wallace, he understood that everyone worships. Even though you might never call it worship, you can be absolutely sure that you are worshiping, that you are seeking, and you need to consider your worship as an identity more than you consider it an activity. You, the worshiper, are always attaching your identity, your meaning, your, your, meaning, your well-being, your sense of purpose to something or someone. And this becomes a, 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 a practical matter for how we live because where a worshiper finds his or her identity, they will always find practical ways of worshiping. Because that something or someone which you attach your identity to will rule your heart. And the Bible teaches us that the heart is the control center of the human being. So whatever rules your heart will automatically exercise control over your desires and your thoughts and your words and your actions. I tell you all this so that you know your identity is important. And where we find identity is important. And only when we worship the one true God and more than just on Sundays, then we can truly know who we are. Because mankind is rightly explained by our relationship to God. And we are made to live in awe of his majesty and, and to worship him. But even how we think about worship may need to be reframed a bit by the glorious nature of our God. Because that's what happens to Peter in this story. He wants to respond in this, in this amazing, awe-inspiring moment with worship. But he makes two mistakes. And, I'm, and I mean other than butting in in the first place. Because it says, I love that it says he's terrified and he didn't know what to say. And most of us would just be quiet, not Peter. And he talks anyway. And then he gets corrected by God the Father himself. So let's look at what Peter gets wrong. In verse 5 it says, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, if you're honest with, with yourself, uh, this response seems a little weird. Because why, whenever you see this glorious manifestation of God, do you want to make tents all of a sudden? And that's because Peter recognizes this as, as the glory of God. And in the Jewish mind, the glory of God resides in the temple. And before that, in the tabernacle, which was a big tent built under the leadership of of Moses. And up until Jesus, that is where the glory of God dwells, in isolated places like the temple and the tabernacle. And that's where you have to go to worship God. And that is where you have to go to be forgiven of sin and, and be in the presence of God. But one of the other disciples who was with Peter and Jesus on that mountain was John. And he wrote a gospel account too. 
And he begins that by telling us that God became flesh and tabernacled among us. He's claiming that Jesus himself is like a temple where the presence and the glory of God dwells. And what's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in one stationary place and making people come to him. He's running around out there in the world with sinners, healing people, forgiving people of sins, healing sickness, blessing people. And he's creating places where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of evil and and dirtiness before people are making themselves clean to enter. And he taught his followers to pray that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And he keeps telling people the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And later in John's gospel, Jesus has this discussion with a a Samaritan woman. And the Samaritans, they worshiped on on a particular mountain. And so she says this to Jesus, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers, the Samaritans, worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we people ought to worship. And Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And then he says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus is radically decentralizing worship. But it gets even more wild because Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit. And he says this so that the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Through Jesus' sacrifice for you, you've become shared space with the presence of God. When we really let this sink in, ah, we we should really meditate on that. Let it shape our lives. What does all of this mean? It means worship is not isolated to certain moments or certain places. Worship is a way of life. Too many of us divide our lives and compartmentalize our lives into these two compartments. We have this, we have this real life compartment and a spiritual life compartment. And, and, you know, the real life compartment, it has all the, the, the real life stuff. It has, you know, jobs and careers and recreation and entertainment and food and friends and money and marriage. It's the, it's the main influence on how we view ourselves and how we view the world around us. It's where we invest our energy and it shapes our happiness and our sadness and it holds our hopes for our children and it has our, our dreams about our future and our vision of the good life. And then there's the spiritual life compartment that has all the God stuff like Sunday mornings and small group Bible study and tithes and morality and rule keeping and some doctrine maybe and mission trips and other God stuff. But it's all segregated from the rest of life. Faith is just one part of our life, not something we live our whole life by. And this is the state of many, many Christians, many of you, I'm sure. 
Yes, you believe in Jesus and his forgiveness and heaven and hell, but these beliefs don't really shape how, you know, how you think about yourself and your life in general. I have a friend who, who even is a Christian, and I frequently, when I'll say something about uh, Jesus in everyday conversation or apply the Bible to everyday life, he'll call me Pastor Jay. He doesn't normally call me that. And, and you know, on many occasions, not just with him, where I'll say something about my faith, relating it to, to life, even among believers, and they'll say, well, you have to say that because you're a pastor. Or, you know, you have to think that way because you're a pastor. Don't give me the pastor answer. And I laugh, you know, and sometimes. And, but it's actually kind of a pet peeve because I'm being relegated to that spiritual compartment, that spiritual life compartment. And I want to say, and sometimes do, that no, I don't say that or think that way because I'm a pastor. I say that and think that because Jesus really is the living Lord of the universe. Jesus Christ, as the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, flies in the face of any worldview that doesn't place our infinitely powerful and loving and gracious and glorious and beautiful and majestic God at the center and everything revolves around Him. And as a pastor, I... I well, a pastor I love named John Piper, he says, uh, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you've drunk deeply and are satisfied, it's because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world, your soul is stuffed with small things, and there is no room for the great. And maybe that metaphor captures me so much because in a non-metaphorical way, I'm very much a snacker, and I don't think I'm ever actually hungry because I'm constantly snacking. And so I, I, I resonate with that, and it's even true spiritually. But what Piper is saying is that we fill up on small things from the world, and we constantly have to keep snacking because they can't keep us full. We were not made for small things. We were made for something great, someone great, someone glorious. And, and this is more practical than we think. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Amen. So do you see what he's saying there? It's the glory of Jesus that transforms us into that glory. That word transformed that he uses there is actually the same Greek word that, he, that Mark uses to describe Jesus' transfiguration, metamorphomai. It's fixing our eyes on Jesus that draws us into the life of Jesus. Beholding our God, like Isaiah says, behold your God. That is what transforms you to become like him. We look to him alone. And that's another mistake that Peter made. In verse 5, again, Peter says, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was thinking of, about Moses and Elijah and Jesus all on the same level. They're all great men. Moses is the great giver of the law. Elijah is the great prophet speaking the word of the Lord. Jesus is the great rabbi and Messiah, this powerful, authoritative teacher. They're all great men. But right after this, this, you know, this cloud envelops them and God speaks and he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then the cloud leaves and Moses and Elijah are gone and only Jesus is there. Jesus is not just another great man 
like Moses and Elijah. Moses mediated the law, but Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Elijah mediated the word of God, but Jesus is the incarnate word of God. He is God's beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him above all other voices. He is utterly unique and set apart, worthy of your undivided devotion. This is why when Peter grows old, I love this, and when Peter grows old and he knows his death is near, he writes a letter. We call it 2 Peter. And he reminds the church of the greatness of Jesus' works and promises to encourage them and give them hope, to stir them up to grow in godliness and confirm their calling. And he grounds all of this and his confidence in this experience that he had on the mountain with Jesus. He says in 2 Peter 1, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Thirty years after this event on this mountain, when he experienced the revelation of the majesty of Jesus Christ, the memory of it still fills Peter's mind with awe, and he wants more than anything to share the hope of that vision with us before he dies, so that we'll be grounded in the same confidence that he has. And so this call that, that Peter says to pay attention, did you catch that? It's very similar to God's call for Peter to listen to Jesus. We have to listen to him above all other voices, even our own selves and our own hearts. Don't listen to your heart, which is a common thing these days. Listen to Jesus. Judge all other voices by Jesus because he is the only one truly and fully trustworthy. And this means just like what happened to Peter, sometimes what Jesus has to say may be correcting us or confronting our assumptions about life. And it may even bother us sometimes. Some people stay away from Christianity because parts of the Bible offend them. But that way of thinking assumes that if there is a God, he wouldn't have any views that upset you. But if the holy, infinite God and your sinful, finite humanity never have any points of conflict, chances are you have remade God in your own image. And then even when you are living out those spiritual parts of your life and worshiping on Sunday morning, you're not worshiping the one true God, you're worshiping yourself. God speaks from heaven to Peter, to you, and says, this is my beloved Son. He may not behave according to your ideas of what a Messiah ought to be like, that picture you've made up in your head, but he is greater than Moses and Elijah and all your other heroes. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. But this voice from heaven was more than just a correction for Peter. After all, 
If we're reading through Mark, this is the second time in this gospel that we've heard something like this, right? This father's voice from heaven speaking his love and approval over Jesus. And that should lead us to ask, what do these two times have in common? What happened? When did this happen the first time? Remember? The baptism. Yes, Jesus' baptism, which marked the beginning of his ministry. Through the Spirit and the spectacular manifestation of his love, God was strengthening and fortifying Jesus for his ministry and that temptation that he immediately faced in the desert, in the wilderness, after his baptism. And now, Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem, and he knows what's going to happen there. And the Father once again strengthens Jesus by speaking his great love over him, to him, fortifying him for the infinite suffering he would endure on the cross to defeat all evil. But it's not just directed at Jesus this time, right? I mean, he says at the baptism, he speaks to Jesus. Now the Father is speaking to the disciples about Jesus because they too would need to be strengthened and steadied for what's to come. And right before, I love this moment, right before Jesus is arrested, in in the Gospel of John, Jesus prays for his disciples and for all who would believe through his message. That's you, and that's me. And he ends that prayer by saying, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Through what Jesus has done on our behalf, the love with which the Father loves Jesus, he has for you. As you give Jesus your your life, you give him your sin, you give him your worship, God looks at you and he says, you are my son, my daughter. I love you. He says, I would go to infinite costs and infinite depths not to lose you. And I have. Feel his loving embrace this morning. Hear his love spoken over you. Let his love strengthen you for what is to come. And move you to worship our great and glorious Savior and King. Let's pray. Lord, our thoughts of you have been too small, too few. There is no one like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds. You are the King of glory and the Lord of love, love deeper and higher than we can know. Our minds are so small and you are so big. And yet you help us know you and love you and worship you. Your glory is our greatest good and joy. Transform us by it to be who you are calling us to be. And we pray in Jesus' majestic name. Amen.